So what we're all after is that Goldilocks immune system. And when people talk about boosting the immune system, I'm like, you got to be careful how you talk about that. You don't want an overactive immune system. You want a just right immune system. Hello, and welcome to The Whole Health Cure, the podcast for people who want science-based information from leading doctors, scientists, and industry leaders on how you can live a lifestyle that will make you healthy from within. Today, we'll be talking about how to improve your immune system and your natural innate defenses against disease, all through optimizing your gut. And our guest today is an amazing expert on gut health, Dr. Robin Chutkan. She's an integrative gastroenterologist and the author of four books, Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, The Bloat Cure, and The Antiviral Gut. Educated at Yale and Columbia, she's a faculty member at Georgetown Hospital and the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness in Washington, D.C. A former governing board member and training committee chair of the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, she's authored dozens of scientific articles and lectured globally on the role of the microbiome in health and disease. A frequent medical expert on The Dr. Oz Show, The Today Show, CBS This Morning, and other media outlets, Dr. Chutkan is passionate about democratizing access to gut health information and introducing more dirt, sweat, and vegetables into her patients' lives. With that, I'd like to welcome you, Robin, to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here, Sharon. And Robin, I've been so excited to have this conversation because I value empowering patients and our patients on what they can do to prevent disease and to protect themselves and even improve the course of their disease. So I'm so excited to talk about the role of the microbiome and, of course, defenses against viruses, which I think is on everyone's mind. I want to start by really talking about your history. So you've been a gastroenterologist for now three decades. Is that right? Yes. I finished medical school in 1991. So technically a little bit less because of course there was internship residency. I did a year as chief resident. I started my gastroenterology fellowship back in 1995. So 27 years. (laughs) Who's counting? (laughs) That's fantastic. And when you did your training the microbiome probably was not even on the radar. Definitely not. Yeah. And so how did your paths converge on integrative gastroenterology and on the microbiome? It's amazing to think back that even 10 years ago, things really weren't on our radar the way they are now. And I was going about my business, practicing gastroenterology, doing a lot of procedures, prescribing a lot of medication, And really thinking deeply about the question, what? So what is this Crohn's? Is it ulcerative colitis? Is this gallstones? Is it reflux, colon cancer, diverticulosis? But not spending a lot of time, Sharon, on that essential question, why? Why does this person have Crohn's disease or gallstones or diverticulitis or colon cancer? And as you know, our medical training really, even today, is still really not focused on that why question. We're very good at the what what is this and what are we going to treat it with, but not why. So I joined the faculty at Georgetown in 1997. I'd been in New York for 10 years. It was time to get out of New York. And I had family in Washington. So I came to Washington, joined the faculty. And a really interesting thing about that time is that I was the first woman on the faculty in GI, which is kind of startling when you think about it. In 1997, it's not that long ago, 25 years ago. 
But gastroenterology, the other interesting thing is that it's still a field that is predominantly male in the practitioners and predominantly female with the patients. So if you think about fields like OBGYN, OBGYN used to be like that. The patients are overwhelmingly female and the doctors used to be overwhelmingly male. And earlier, it happened earlier in OBGYN than in gastroenterology, women really started to demand what they call a gender concordant physician. Of course, the best physician is one who takes care of you regardless of their race, gender, anything else. But there, this similar phenomena lagged a little bit behind, but started to happen in gastroenterology, where women started to say, you know, colonoscopy is sort of an intimate procedure, and I'd really like a woman to do it. And if I'm going to talk about my smelly gas, I'd like to talk about it with another woman. So we started to see in a relatively short time. So Sharon, if I think back to when I started my gastroenterology fellowship, in 1995, and when I went into practice in 1997, even within those two years, being a woman was almost like a strike against you in the beginning because people assumed, oh, you're going to be having babies, you're not going to want to take emergency call and be scoping people who are bleeding in the middle of the night. And then within a few years, I mean, to this day now, I get calls every month from people saying, do you have any good female fellows at Georgetown who are looking for jobs? So we saw the job market for female gastroenterologists go from pretty bad to all of a sudden female gastroenterology fellows were getting five offers to every one that their male counterpart was getting because consumers, women were saying, I really prefer a female gastroenterologist. And So when I joined the faculty at Georgetown, I had a ready-made, steady stream of patients even before they knew who I was and they knew whether I would take good care of them or not. I had a long line of women waiting to see me. And one of the things that I found, and this is a huge generalization because this is true obviously for men and women, but in my clinic at the time, I had a lot of patients, mostly women, asking me, why? Why do I have Crohn's? Why is my ulcerative colitis flaring? And I didn't have a lot of answers for them. And so I started to really just experiment a little bit with diet and different things. My area of expertise is Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So I had a lot of patients who were taking conventional therapy, but also, and remember, this is before biologics with IBD, right? So this is when we had, back in the days of five ASAs, we had no biologics to treat IBD. We had steroids and five amino salicylic acid derivatives. But a lot of my patients were doing other things. They were experimenting with their diet. They were on the specific carbohydrate diet, or they were going vegan. They were doing things. And some of them were seeing really amazing results. And I was very curious. And I wasn't just hearing from them that they were doing better. I was actually deep in their colon and seeing the evidence for myself. I was seeing ulcers healed, gone. I remember my first patient who really introduced me to this concept of food as medicine. She was a young woman, and at the time, I was a young doctor. We were about the same age. We were early 30s, 31. And she worked at the hospital at Georgetown, and she had Crohn's and was under my care. And then she left, and she went to work somewhere else. And she came back about three years later, and I was happy to see her. And I remember saying, how are you doing? She said, I'm doing great. And I said, what are you on? And she said, nothing. And I got so frightened for her. I was like, nothing? That's like driving a car with no insurance. You know, what if you crash? I was literally scared for her. And I remember doing her endoscopy and being just completely flabbergasted because her severe Crohn's, her deep ulcerations, her strictures were gone. Her colon looked normal. And I remember just 
kind of quizzing her and saying, well, what are you doing? How is this possible? What's going on? And she at the time was doing sort of a cross between the specific carbohydrate diet, taking out a lot of the processed refined grains, the sugar, the dairy, and more plant-based. And at the time, I mean, keep in mind now, this is, you know, 23 years ago, 24 years ago. So it's not like it is now where people are very aware of food. And I was so intrigued by it. And so I started to ask patients because a lot of patients had almost like a don't ask, don't tell policy. They were doing other things, but they recognized that conventional medicine was often sort of taking a dim view of what they were doing. So they weren't volunteering it. And the things they were doing, they were doing acupuncture, they were doing traditional Chinese medicine, they were doing mindfulness practices, they were taking some supplements, they were doing all kinds of different things, and they were doing dietary changes. And so the sort of funny story about it is I was trying to go to a conference in Capri, Italy, and it was a young investigators conference. I was making it just onto the wire based on my age, and I wanted a really novel topic to present on. So I did a little survey in my clinic about the use of complementary and alternative medicine. And I was really shocked to find out that 78% of the patients were using some form of complementary or alternative medical therapy, whether it was mindfulness, massage, meditation, herbal therapy, etc. So I wrote up my little abstract, it got accepted, off I went to Capri to present. <laughs> but it really sort of ignited a spark in me, an interest in, wow, patients are successfully doing these things. And many of them were also taking the medications we were prescribing. But Sharon, my, my personal sort of up-close shift came with the birth of my daughter 17 and a half years ago. And I was healthy. I was 39 at the time. So advanced maternal age gets stamped all over your chart. But I was very healthy, no medications, uneventful pregnancy. And I had flu at the time of her birth. I had the flu and a fever. So they ended up giving me antibiotics prophylactically. She ended up having a, it was a C-section delivery as a result of some labor-inducing drugs that they give you and they don't really tell you that this drug that is going to speed up your labor is also going to increase the likelihood of a C-section. And so she was a C-section baby. And because of my fever, even though she was very healthy at birth, they gave her antibiotics just in case, again, prophylactically, two big doses of an IV antibiotic, put her in the neonatal ICU for observation. My breast milk dried up after about six weeks, I think as a result of a lot of the antibiotics I had gotten right around birth. And Sharon, she was so sick as a young child in those first two years. And this was my first baby. And even having gone to medical school, I didn't know that your kid isn't supposed to be on antibiotics every month. She was constantly either about to have some sort of ear infection, throat infection, some cough or cold, in the middle of one, or recovering. And I also had no awareness at the time of the difference between a vaginal delivery and a C-section birth. And I know it's something you're profoundly aware of, and I think a lot of the people in your community are, but for those who aren't, Babies that are born vaginally pass through that birth canal and they're colonized with the mother's microbes. Babies born via C-section are colonized with hospital-acquired Staphylococcus aureus, which I don't think you have to be a microbiologist to know that doesn't sound quite as good. 
And this difference in early colonization leads to increases in those C-section babies, higher, a higher risk for asthma, for autoimmune diseases, for allergies, and for childhood obesity. In addition to not being born vaginally, she got that early hit to her microbiome with the antibiotics. And we know that in breast milk, the third most common ingredient in breast milk is something called human milk oligosaccharides. There to feed the baby's bacteria, not the baby. She also didn't get the benefit of significant breastfeeding. So she had this sort of triple whammy of C-section, minimal breastfeeding, and lots of antibiotics. And that initial entrance into the world via C-section, accompanied by a lot of antibiotics and minimal breast milk, ushered in four or five years of really poor health. And it wasn't until one day she had gone to the doctor for probably the 25th time, still in preschool, and she came back. My husband had taken her that day, and she came back with a nebulizer machine and stickers and a new diagnosis of asthma and four prescriptions, an antibiotic, an inhaler, an antihistamine, and a steroid. And I said, okay, that's it. We've got to find a new way. And I packed everything up, and I always like to preface this by saying I recognize that as a physician, I had an additional skill set that allowed me to do that. And I certainly do not recommend that anybody stop seeing their pediatrician, but I do strongly recommend that you have that sort of conversation with your pediatrician saying, hey, are you aware that my daughter has been on 22 courses of antibiotics and she's not yet even in preschool? And I think that the very well-meaning, lovely pediatrician was just sort of opening the chart to the last page and saying, okay, well, she was on amoxicillin last time, let's try this. And nobody was keeping track. So I went home and pulled out my filing, all my little antibiotic receipts, and realized I actually made a chart, Sharon. And I went in, and I think she was pretty shocked. But even then, we were, you know, this is before Marty Blazer wrote his fantastic book, Missing Microbes. And so that statistic now that's often quoted that five days or a week of broad-spectrum antibiotics can remove a third of your gut bacteria, nobody knew. And in those first thousand days of life, in the baby's first few years, that microbiome is so tender. It's just growing and burgeoning. And so when it gets a hit like that, it's really difficult to recover from. So it really took me a couple years, even as a physician, to realize what so many parents now take from, they know it because we just, we know it because it's in the literature, it's in the common press. We know that frequent antibiotics actually put our kids and us as adults at risk for more infection by removing large swathes of the microbiome that is there to protect us. But I didn't know it at the time. So we finally embarked on a different path of lots of split pea soup and green smoothies. You know, when they're little, you can still force a lot of that stuff into them. And just waiting it out. I remember taking her, she kept getting these air infections. And I remember taking her to see this wonderful pediatric allergist. And she said, well, she's got fluid in her airs. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna put her on suppressive antibiotics. And I said, well, for how long? And she said, indefinitely, until the fluid goes away. And something just said to me, yeah, this is not a good idea. And Sharon, it seems absurd now, right? Because of like, of course you wouldn't do that. But again, this was almost 18 years ago. 
So at the time, it felt like a very lonely journey. And people were like, what do you mean? You're not taking her to the doctor and she has a cold or whatever. But she did over time. It took a couple of years, but she definitely got her resiliency back. And she's now a senior in high school, five foot eight and a half, a rower, super healthy and doing really well. But what really put it together for me was I was seeing a lot of patients in my practice with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis with the exact same history. C-section babies, lots of antibiotics. We had a big meta-analysis come out from my home institution where I did my GI training, Mount Sinai, showing that early antibiotics in early childhood was one of the main risk factors for triggering autoimmune diseases like Crohn's. So again, you have the genetic susceptibility in some, you have environmental factors, diet, et cetera, and then of course the antibiotics. So it really was that experience with my daughter. And even though I literally have it always in the back of my mind, like, oh, I wish I could do a do-over. I'd have her at home with a doula, <laughs> no antibiotics. But I'm also grateful for the experience because it really opened my eyes, Sharon, and it made me realize that when you follow those breadcrumbs backward, you start to see in so many instances how these diseases are created and they're made, not born. And I also just want to say that C-sections save millions of lives for sure, mothers' lives, babies' lives, and we are fortunate to live in an era of modern medicine. But it's also very clear that they're not being used judiciously, and it is a surgical technique that is overutilized for issues around commerce and convenience, et cetera. So I think for all these things, antibiotics, biologics, C-sections, I mean, it is amazing that we have these tools in our armamentarium, but I think we're not as good stewards as we could be in terms of being more selective about when we employ them. Yeah, and I can relate to so many parts of what you said in my journey, in my path in academic medicine, as well as as a parent. And as much as it seems right now saying, hey, this was maybe 20 years ago, we didn't know, this happens today. I mean, I still see this, and it's such common practice. So despite the thousands of studies that have been published since the time you went through this, I think still there's so much more awareness and communication and working with people. And as you said, there's such benefit to what our academic world offers, traditional medicine offers. But there's also this intuitive piece, like you said, where you don't even have to be a physician, but just knowing this doesn't feel right. And sometimes giving your body a chance to catch up, if you will, and build its own resilience and so the gut microbiome, of course, brings this all together, right? It's just a great blend of how we've used research tools, the finest of really the skills in the academic world. And the way you improve the health of it, of course, is more, you know, I always tell my patients, they can make themselves far healthier than I can. I love them, that. Right. Yeah. And this is a class. <laughs> it makes my job easier. <laughs> And um, so the connection between the microbiome, I mean, you mentioned in your daughter, you noticed so much in her health, her resilience. What's the connecting point between all those pieces? Well, if you think about one of our main organ systems for keeping us healthy, and it's this sort of ethereal system that we call the immune system, that nobody, it's like, well, what is it? Is it even a thing? Is it like your kidneys and liver that you can touch it? And 
you actually can. And as you know, Sharon, about 70% of it is physically located in our GI tract. We have our GI tract is this thing is so sort of this idea is so rudimentary, but it's also, I think, so eye-opening for people to realize that when something is in their GI tract, it's not in their body. It's in this hollow tube. It's like a tunnel that runs from our mouth to our anus all the way down. And it's really the environment that we ingest different things we eat, undigested food particles, et cetera. And then, of course, we have this highly selective gut membrane that is razor thin, one cell thick. And that is what is protecting us from the outside world that is in our gastrointestinal tract. So you have all these trillions of microbes in the GI tract, along with the products of digestion, ingested toxins, viruses, all sorts of things. Dare repellent in my case that I accidentally swallowed the other day. <laughs> Thank goodness I have a strong gut that I, my dad had sprayed some plants. He grows some greens and I picked them and I'm I have this bad habit of not washing things and did not realize. So amazing that my gut protected me from that. But so you have this thin lining and you have the trillions of microbes on one side, on the outside of the gut lining, which is in the gut lumen. And then you have all the immune processes occurring on the other side, on the inside of the gut lining. And they're in constant interaction. And to give you a physical example of how it works, there are species of bacteria in our gut called Bacteroidetes fragilis. You know, we abbreviate it as BFRAG. And BFRAG are doing surveillance. And when they see, for example, a harmful virus, they literally sort of kick the gut lining to trigger the release of interferons. And I love the name interferons because they're so-called because they interfere with viruses. So I, whoever named them interferons really was a straight shooter. And so B. fragilis sort of kicks the lining to release the interferons, which then trigger this whole immune cascade of antiviral activity. So you can start to imagine if you don't have enough B. fragilis in your gut that this interferon release immune cascade doesn't happen and your viral surveillance, you may not be able to mount enough of an immune response to clear that virus. And the converse can happen too. If you have a disrupted gut microbiome or a disrupted gut lining, you can have too active an immune response and you can end up with dreaded cytokine storm where you're releasing too much of an immune cascade and now you're destroying normal lung tissue, heart tissue, et cetera. So it is really, the microbes are air traffic control. Amongst all the other things they do with digesting food, clearing toxins, synthesizing vitamins like vitamin K, training the immune system, activating genes. But the training of the immune system and that air traffic control and literally telling our immune cells, okay, this one, this is a big one, big reaction needed hair. They're like the conductor. This one, stand down, harmless, no need to do anything at all. And so what we see is that societies that are super clean, that are super sanitized, like ours, where people often aren't exposed to a lot of germs early on, the immune system, the training doesn't proceed as it should, and that can result in autoimmune diseases later on, where the body reacts to its own normal tissues as foreign. So in the case of the diseases I treat, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, the body is responding to its own gut bacteria and its own gut tissue and creating ulcers and inflammation. With rheumatoid arthritis, it's the joints. With psoriasis, it's the skin. We see it with, you know, we're up to over 100 different autoimmune diseases right now. 
And you can really link the increase in many of these diseases to the increase in a highly pesticized food chain, ultra-processed food, lack of exposure to nature, low-fiber, high-animal product diets, all of these things are, and of course, the overuse of antibiotics, not just the ones that we take, but also the ones that are given to the animals that people eat in the food industry. So we can really almost superimpose these curves. And, um, and so that's the link between the gut and the immune system. And of course, the immune system doesn't just keep us safe from pathogens like viruses and bacteria, but it's also our cancer surveillance. So it, start, it looks at cells and says, okay, you're dividing a little funnily. Your division is a little off, and we're going to get rid of you because you're moving in the wrong direction here. And so when you don't have that proper immune surveillance for cancer, you have an increased rate of malignancies also. So I love to explain this concept of the Goldilocks immune system, and I know it's something you're very familiar with, but if you'll humor me for your listeners, and when we think about threats, if we think about internal threats and a too active immune system, internal threats are our body's own tissue. So a too active immune system will respond to internal threats and cause autoimmune disease. So all the lupus, MS, rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera. External threats to active immune system, allergies, nut allergies, allergies to pollen, et cetera, seasonal allergies. And we see a lot of that in this country. We see a lot of autoimmune disease and we see a lot of allergies. So that's too active. Underactive, internal threats, cancer. External threats, infection, viral, bacterial, fungal, et cetera. So what we're all after is that Goldilocks immune system. And when people talk about boosting the immune system, I'm like, you got to be careful how you talk about that. You don't want an overactive immune system. You want a just right immune system. And so again, you need a healthy complement of microbes for that. You need microbial diversity and richness. And you also need the microbes to be producing a very important post-metabolite or post-biotic called short-chain fatty acids, things like butyric acid, because those substances actually help modulate the immune system. And they also feed the colonocytes, the cells lining the gut, to keep the gut lining healthy, to keep it nice and impermeable so that things like viruses and other things can't get through, poorly digested food particles, et cetera. So to keep the intestinal permeability at a nice normal level. So I try to sometimes make it sexier than eat more vegetables. So I'll expand it to dirt, sweat, vegetables. You need to get out in nature, get some exercise, eat more vegetables. And of course, there, there are more nuances to it than that. But foundationally, that's really important. The exposure to soil microbes and eating adequate amounts of plant fiber, regardless of what else you're eating. We have a brilliant study from the folks at the American Gut Project in 2018, where they looked at over 10,000 people globally, and they looked at what were the markers, the dietary markers for healthy microbiome. And they found that it was this magic number of 30 or more different plant foods per week. So people who ate 30 or more different plant foods per week had a much healthier microbiome than those who ate 10 or fewer. And this is really interesting to keep in mind because I'm sure you have the same thing with your practice where I have patients who'll say, well, I eat vegetables every day. And they do, but it's the same peas, carrots, broccoli in heavy rotation. So they're not eating a variety of plant foods. And the interesting thing about this study is it didn't matter whether you were a vegan, pescatarian, lacto-ovarian, carnivore, 
So it wasn't so much whether you were also eating other things that might not be as great for your microbiome. If you were getting in this diversity of different plant foods, and so fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts, herbs, spices, all of these different things, you had a healthier microbiome. And it's a fun game to play to see if you can get to 30. I mean, my husband got to 17 in a day. And when you think about it, so if you take a bowl of oatmeal, if you use almond milk, one, the oats, two, raisins, three, pumpkin seeds, four, blueberries, five, maybe you put some shredded coconut on it, six, you could do the same thing with a salad. So you can get pretty close to 30 in a day with a little effort. And certainly it's 30 per week. So if you're doing six or seven different plant foods per day, you're in really good shape to get to that number. Yeah. And it's wonderful that you've summarized, you know, when people want to, quote, boost, that you can get a hyper response. This concept of Goldilocks medium, I think, is so fascinating to think through because there's a lot of terminology like immune health, terms that aren't exactly clear what you're accomplishing. When a person does eat plant variety, what are they doing to their immune system? You know, we have an innate immune system, an adaptive immune system. Can you give us a little bit of a primer on how exactly we're tweaking our immune system to get to this Goldilocks range? Absolutely. So the innate immune system, as you mentioned, is the one that we're born with. And it it acts rapidly, but it's pretty nonspecific. So for example, if you get a cut, the innate immune system is going to jump in quickly to combat whatever bacteria might be getting in through that wound in your skin, but it's not going to be specific to what's going on. The adaptive immune system, which is sometimes called the acquired immune system, keeps a memory of every pathogen that you're exposed to so that when it sees it again, it can react to it. And for some things, that initial reaction that it has makes you immune. So as this is a basis for vaccines, you get exposure to a little bit of something. And then when you see that pathogen again, you're now making antibodies to it. And for some types of vaccines or some types of infection, like measles, you're immune. You're not going to get it again. For other types, as we've seen with SARS-CoV-2, you're not completely immune. But that's the adaptive immune system, and it is much more specific, but it can sometimes take a longer time to kick in. And again, we know that all of those cells that are involved in the immune system, the T cells, the B lymphocytes, et cetera, again, they're all requiring a certain level of these short-chain fatty acids for healthy functioning. And so if you're eating a very unhealthy diet, And of course, there are other things that can affect it too. Immune suppressing medications, stress, lack of sleep, all of these things can affect the immune system too. But the dietary component is a pretty big one. And we have studies from all over the world. As you said, we have thousands of studies showing this to be the case. If you were to tell our listeners like top five things they can do to build their immune defenses... What would be your top five? Number one would be take a look in the medicine cabinet and make sure that prescription over-the-counter supplements you're taking are not ruinous to your gut microbes. So it's not just antibiotics, but acid-blocking drugs. We know that acid-blocking drugs, by the particularly the prescription ones, proton pump inhibitors, by removing all the stomach acid, they change a gradient of bacteria in our GI tract. They also remove stomach acid, which is one of our body's most important defenses against viruses, because how do viruses get into the body? 
we can breathe them in or we can swallow them in. And when we swallow them in, stomach acid denatures that viral protein and renders a virus inactive, as opposed to somebody who's taking their Nexium religiously and has no stomach acid, and now the virus is able to infect intestinal cells. And we know we have way more ACE2 receptors for SARS-CoV-2, for example, in our GI tract than we even have in our lungs. So looking at things like acid blockers, antibiotics, we know that certain types of hormone replacement therapy, birth control pills, there's a wide range of different medications. And I do go over lots of them in the book and mention alternatives as well as questions to ask your doctor. If you look at a drug like steroids, steroids suppress the immune system. So they are acting directly on the immune system, not so much on the gut bacteria. But we know that there are safer doses of steroids. At a lower dose, we know that alternative alternate day dosing is safer in terms of the immune suppression. So it's not always, you know, you must get off this drug immediately. Sometimes there is an alternative. If we look at things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, we have COX-2 inhibitors that are less deleterious to the gut, or you can take it at a lower dose. You can combine it with something else. So these are important things to be aware of, that it's not all or nothing for these medications. But I would say the medicine cabinet is a really important place to start. There was an article from the journal Nature a few years ago that looked at 41 different classes of drugs and found that 19 of them were posing a significant threat to the microbiome. And so, of course, they were the obvious ones, but there were also laxatives, SSRIs that people take for depression. Artificial sweeteners are not a huge group. So there are lots of things that we're ingesting that are actually problematic for the microbiome. Another thing that I would say is we need exposure to soil microbes. After we get those microbes from our mother during that prophetic moment of our birth, for those of us who are fortunate enough to be born vaginally, the next place we get the microbes from is from our environment. And that's why babies of any species, baby humans, baby dogs, baby cats, they're constantly putting stuff in their mouth. They are literally rewilding themselves as they interact with their environment and they play in the ground and on the dirt and they get dirty. Now, of course, you've got to sort of monitor that to make sure your baby is not putting something, you don't want your baby actually eating dog poo or something that could be, or deer repellent in my case. So you have to be careful with that. But we definitely need more interaction with soil microbes. And we know that there's this amazing thing called the outdoor air factor which we've known about from the Spanish flu epidemic, we saw that the typically the officers who were put inside the hospital to recuperate had a much higher mortality than the enlisted men who were kept outside on cots. And in one study, there was a difference of a 40% mortality for inside recovery versus 13% for outside. So this outdoor air factor is defined as a germicidal constituent in open air that is toxic to pathogens like SARS-CoV-2, et cetera. So getting outside, not just because transmission is lower, but because recovery is also better. We know from a lot of the Japanese studies that Shinrin-yoku, forest bathing, I'm sure I've butchered it from in terms of the pronunciation, but that forest bathing, I know you know about that landmark study, Sharon, where they took people in Japan, in Tokyo, had them walk in the suburbs versus in a forested area over a period of 90 minutes. And they found reductions, not just in feelings of well-being, but in significant cardiovascular risk factors, et cetera. 
And we know that's true for viral susceptibility also. So that being outside in nature has a calming and a healing and a balancing influence on our bodies and is very good for our immune system. Sleep. Sleep is a huge one. And I'll tell you, when I was writing this book, I went down a rabbit hole with sleep, reading Matthew Walker's excellent book, Why We Sleep, and Sean Sean Stevenson's book, Sleep Better. And I just was so fascinated by sleep. And it turns out that not just with acute infection, but also vaccines, vaccines are significantly less effective if you've been sleep deprived the two days before you receive them. And the study that is quoted for COVID and sleep is that people who are chronically sleep deprived, six or few hours of sleep, 76% increase in likelihood of becoming infected. And for every additional hour of sleep you get, your risk drops by 12%. So sleep reboots the computer that is our immune system. And we see it in college students. When they're during finals, they're not sleeping, they're stressed. That's another big one. And they're more susceptible. So these things are not accidental. We know that acute stress can increase levels of pathogenic bacteria a thousandfold in an hour, in one hour, because of that adrenaline and noradrenaline, norepinephrine that's coursing through our bodies. So these things are not just in our head. They're very much in our body. They affect our immune system. So we've done medicine cabinet. We need to get outside. We need to get sleep at least seven hours if you're a grown-up. And there are different recommendations depending on what age your children are. There are lots of guidelines to look at, but I also go through it in detail in the book. So get sleep. In terms of stress, we may not be able to do much about a stressful situation, but we can change our response to it. And one of my favorite studies is one from University of North Carolina where they looked at HIV-positive men, and they found that men who reported chronic serious stress in their lives, like unemployment or marital discord, their progression to AIDS was two to four times faster. And if you think about shingles, who gets shingles? People have had chicken pox in the past as kids and are now stressed out. So we know that stress can reactivate latent viruses. We see it with mono, with EBV. We see it with herpes outbreaks. We see it with shingles, with varicella. And we've seen manifestations of that with post-viral syndromes with COVID. So the, and the stress and sleep thing, because of course, when we're stressed, we tend to not sleep as well. That's a big one. And then diet. So those are, for me, those are sort of the pillars. If I were to talk about just the gut, I would really talk about stomach acid, the gut lining, and the gut bacteria. That sort of triumvirate. Pay attention to those three things. Maintain your stomach acid. You don't have to take additional acid. Your stomach will do its thing. You have to just not prevent it from doing its thing by taking proton pump inhibitors for long periods of time unless you absolutely need them. And then really maintaining the integrity of that lining. So that means thinking about things that can affect the permeability of the gut, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, like lots of alcohol, like, again, highly processed and pesticized foods. We've seen a lot of news this year about ultra-processed foods and colon cancer and different things. So it's not just that these foods are nutriently poor, it's also that they contain emulsifiers and other chemicals that are harmful to our gut lining and that are harmful to our gut bacteria. So they're actually actively 
doing damage. We're not just missing nutrients, they're actively doing damage to our gut lining and our gut bacteria. And we know that, for example, certain emulsifiers in food are linked to Crohn's disease, to developing it, to having flare-ups. So we want to be thoughtful about our food. And the thing I love about thinking about it this way and looking at it through this lens, Sharon, is it's not about going out and like getting a superfood or buying a supplement. It's just being aware of what your body is doing to protect you. And even thinking about how our body reacts when we're sick. So we think about a fever. A fever is our body's way of slowing down viral replication. When we have a fever, viruses are not able to replicate as fast. If we look at poliovirus, poliovirus replicates 250 times faster at normal body temperature compared to when we have a fever. But what do we do when we get a fever? We immediately reach for the ibuprofen and the acetaminophen without thinking, oh, my body is actually raising the temperature to try and eliminate this virus, to stop it from replicating. Or mucus, which is, as you know, produced in the GI tract, about a, a liter and a half a day. And mucus is this amazing cross between jello and glue, sticky matrix that traps viruses. And then additionally, there are enzymes in mucus that degrade viruses. And then the cilia move the viruses up and out. But if at the first sign of increased mucus production, instead of saying, oh, my body is fighting something, we reach for an antihistamine, a decongestant. We dry up our mucus, slow down the production, and now we're not able to trap and expel viruses. So the American Pediatrics Association realized that quite a while ago, and their guidelines for children are to not use these cough suppressants, but the same applies for adults also. So like you, Sharon, my, my joy in life is really explaining how these things work, particularly the gut defenses to people, so that they can know how to optimize them, know not to sabotage them, and learn how to keep themselves safe that way. Yeah, and you do a beautiful job in how you present that in your book by having what people shouldn't do, essentially, the ways we are damaging our gut microbiome without knowing and the things we should do, because I think we focus a lot more on maybe if we yes. add this or add that and never on maybe how am I getting myself in this position in the first place. So I think there's a wealth of information and the way you break it down, I think, is so helpful. I have one final question with the time we have left. For people who want to put this in context of how much am I really improving my health? Because when we do these lifestyle measures, there's complexity to actually doing it, but they're also very simple, intuitive things, and they aren't high-tech. In terms of how much of an impact we can have strengthening microbiome, doing the beautiful five things you just mentioned, can you put that in a context or frame it in how much can we improve our resilience? How much can we add to our defenses? There was an incredible study from 2021 that I think really put that into context when they looked at the accuracy of the microbiome for predicting outcome from COVID in hospitalized patients. And they found that the accuracy was 92%. High levels of Fecalobacterium prosnitzii, the bacteria that is very prevalent in people eating a lot of plants. This is a bacteria that churns out those short-chain fatty acids we were talking about. High levels were very predictive of good outcomes. Low levels were very predictive for respiratory failure, ventilation, ICU, and death. 
And so this 92% accuracy is far more predictive than looking at comorbidities, age, even things like C-reactive protein, sedimentation rate, et cetera, some of the more conventional inflammatory markers. So what we see from that study is that the health, the diversity, the richness of the microbiome is actually the most accurate predictor of how we're going to do. And when we look at some of these other comorbidities that are associated with poor outcome, not just from COVID, but from all kinds of other things, we see that these illnesses, like having obesity, being diabetic, even heart disease, that these conditions are associated with disruption in the microbiome. And so for me, I lived it with my daughter once we sort of changed course and we really focused on her diet and we stopped all these medications that weren't necessary in her particular case, but remember to check with your doctor. And we really focused on sort of building her resiliency back and it paid off. She stopped being sick all the time. I mean, it was quite traumatic. And the thing, again, I love these things are so basic. I mean, you think about something like water. You know, water, the digestive tract is one of the main organs of elimination, but not just for the products of digestion, also for toxins and viruses, all those things that we're ingesting, when our body tries to get rid of them, tries to eliminate them, we walk around dehydrated and unable to eliminate them. So simple things, I'll take a sip of water in honor of that. Simple things like hydrating ourselves better are really, really so important. And I think about like, why are we so dissociated from these things, you know? And I think part of it is that they are very simple, that we're looking for the magic high-tech answer to this stuff and forgetting about the sleep, the stress reduction, the water, the exposure to nature, the not taking all these drugs. So it's a real pleasure to help people remember and to really give them the actionable steps for how they can improve their resiliency and overall improve their health. You do such a great job. And Robin, for people who want more resources, where can they find you? Where can they learn more? They can find me at my both difficult to spell first and last name, robinchutkan.com, R-O-B-Y-N-N-E-C-H-U-T-K-A-N, or gutbliss.com. And they can find me on Instagram at gutbliss. And of course, they can find me on incredible podcasts like yours. Thank you so much for the pleasure and the honor of being on. Oh, thank you so much for joining us and for all the wonderful information and for all the work you're doing and really pioneering. So thank you so much. Thank you. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness and is copyrighted by Emory University. Until next time, do something to help improve your whole health naturally. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent.